out of all of the subjects in the Bible, this is one that has become very near and dear to me in that as I age in the Lord and as my studies are undergoing, ongoing, I'm finding that there is a connection between particularly Christian suffering and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that's inseparable. Now, I hope that you will be able to be benefited from this series as much as I have in preparing it. I'm not hesitant to make extravagant claims, but I will say that next to my conversion experience, I have never had more of an understanding given to me from the Bible on a subject that has helped me more in my Christian walk than what we're going to be presenting to you in the coming weeks and months ahead. It can be transforming to your life. And I pray that it might be such, if God is pleased. Particularly in some areas as we come to the end of the series, dealing with the relationship of Christian suffering and Christian rewards in heaven. How to handle the issue of reward without merit, and yet the connection that our eternal state and what we're going to be participating in in that eternal state, how that relates to the present series of sufferings that you and I are called upon to experience. We'll be breaking some new ground there. Not that there's anything new under the sun, but some things in which I think will be helpful to the church of God. The first in this series is that we are entitling the message today, The Origin of Suffering. I ask you to turn with me to two passages of Scripture, one in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 3, and verses 14 through 17. And then one from the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, chapter 3, and verses 1 through 7. Reading from 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 14. But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, or set apart God. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. In this statement here, we are told as believers that we are to be equipped to the point where we can explain the mystery of human suffering to unbelievers as they observe how we respond to God in the midst of suffering. This passage is sometimes just taken in the generic that for Christians are to be ready to give a hermeneutic or a way of interpretation of all the great doctrines of the faith. But in the context, it's in the context of suffering. As unbelievers watch how believers suffer, and when they come and ask the believer, how are you able to stand up? You're approaching life different than I am, then we are to be ready to give an explanation for that. That means that we are accountable and responsible as Christians to have an understanding to some degree where we can explain this to unbelievers. Now from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of the tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. 
When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made them aprons. May God bless the reading of the word. The type of message we'll bring today is not following a verse-by-verse exposition, but the presentation that will be coming forth will be confined within the perimeter of these passages of Scripture. All we have to do is live long enough in this world, and we will personally experience suffering and pain. It may occur in the realm of the physical, the emotional, or the mental. We all experience suffering. Some of us more than others. In fact, all we have to do is live long enough and we'll die. Now, while these points are undeniable, yet grief and pain seem to catch us by surprise, do they not? Did you hear what happened to so-and-so? I never would have dreamed that that could have happened. Why not? Well, so-and-so was in a car wreck. I never thought about that. We all know that these things are potential. And yet, these things seem to catch us by surprise. We know that we are not immune to these things. But there is an inward attitude which pretends that we are, that somehow we are immortal. And these will never occur to us. They happen to other people, but not us. Earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, famines, war, and diseases destroy human lives by the dozens, the hundreds, the thousands, yes, even the millions. But when these things happen to us, we cry out with the words of our Savior, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There are no greater words that are uttered more frequently in times of suffering than the words, Why, Lord? Or where was God at to allow such to happen to me? The words of Mary and Martha. You remember the sisters of Lazarus? Express it well. Upon Lazarus' death and Jesus' arrival, they greeted him with this expression, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. If you'd have been here, this suffering would not have happened. The telephone rings in the night, and the parents learn that their child has been killed in an accident. The devoted wife is devastated to learn that her husband has had an affair and he wants a divorce. A husband watches as breast cancer destroys his beautiful wife of many years. Parents grieve as they hold the swollen body of their child who's dying of leukemia. Children watch as the brilliant mind of their father disintegrates with Alzheimer's. A child cannot understand why his or her parents are separating. The father is suddenly informed that the company is doing away with his job and he has no prospect of another to enable him to meet the needs of the family. A minister learns that his congregation no longer desires his ministry. A church learns that its minister has participated in an act of immorality. These things and hundreds like them cause the sufferers to ask, Where's God? The existence of suffering and evil in the world has been the main tool used by skeptics and atheists against the idea of God's existence. That's the fact. The existence of God is known as theism. This belief holds that God is the creator and providential sustainer 
of all that exists in the heavens and the earth. Biblical revelation reveals his character to be omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. Omniscient, meaning he's all-knowing. Omnipresent, meaning he exists everywhere. It reveals he is holy, wrathful against sin and evil, that he is good, that he is loving, that he's merciful, that he's long-suffering, and that he exhibits a sovereignty over all of the affairs of the world order. And there are other attributes which we did not take time to put in to the revelation of God about God's character. Now, I rarely do jigsaw puzzles. I assume all of us in this culture knows what a jigsaw puzzle is. But when I do, I begin by locating all the pieces that have a straight edge because I know that they will make an outside frame for which all the other pieces will fit within the puzzle. This method makes it easier to solve the mystery of how the pieces of the puzzle fit together, even though the individual inside pieces may be difficult to locate and to fit. In dealing with the mystery of human suffering, I propose to use this analogy of a jigsaw puzzle. And as we unfold this series, we'll be bringing up a white writing board and we'll draw out this puzzle in its square form first and then start putting the individual pieces within it. In dealing with the mystery of human suffering... I propose to stay within the framework of the biblical data relating to the character and providence of God. This involves honoring all of God's attributes in contrast to ignoring some of them. When we try to explain human suffering by limiting the character of God, we will produce a warp framework, which will never allow all the pieces of the biblical revelation to fit together. We must embrace all of the character of God, or else we'll come up with a warped understanding of human suffering. Now, I wish to say at the outset that I do not possess all the answers to the many questions raised by human suffering in specific detail. Neither do I think the Bible gives a definitive answer to every question on suffering. As Brother Jim read about Job, Job never had it explained to him why he suffered. But the Bible does speak of it often and shows us both how to view suffering and how God uses suffering to achieve His purposes. In fact, we can say that the Bible is the book on suffering. No other book in human existence addresses the subject of suffering the way the Bible addresses it. Now let us begin our journey into the mystery of suffering by asking ourselves a question. Do we believe in the existence of God? What do you say? Do you? How many of you do? At least I get some hands there. <laughs> I see that hand over there, Jim. Now, follow me. If we say yes, then we have a problem. Does that shock you? If God is omnipotent and perfectly good, how can He permit such evil? And all it takes is some hospital experiences as I have had with little children, three, four, five years old, dying of leukemia. And seeing the swollen body 
the bleeding of the skin and see parents asking, where's God at? If God is willing but not able to check the suffering, then he's not omnipotent. If he is able but not willing, how can he be perfectly good? The very existence of evil and suffering calls into question the existence of God. And this is why the skeptics and the atheists have used this as their main tool against Christianity. Now, this may not trouble many believers. There are millions of ordinary Christians who hold that God is omnipotent, that God is perfectly good, that suffering abounds in the world. In this stage of their Christian experience, they do not feel there's a problem. They have abbreviated theological answers which satisfy them. Suffering is the result of sin. Free will means that God has to leave people to make their own mistakes. Heaven and hell will set the record straight. When we all get to heaven, then we'll understand. Or perhaps they consider this a mere intellectual question of which they are not really troubled. They'd rather not really think about these matters at all. After all, God loves them. That's enough. Why trouble your mind Brother Jim, about things you can't understand. The sun is shining. Life is pleasant and going well. God is good. Then, something takes place in their personal life that jolts them to the core of their very being. A loved one dies. A disease hits a family member. A marriage falls apart. They lose their job, their home, their life savings. And then their Christian testimony is questioned by their friends, as Job's friends did his. They drift into depression and despondency. Or they are stricken with a terminal disease. Suddenly, questions about suffering and evil become vital and important. In other words, one's concerns about suffering and evil are conditioned by the personal circumstances that one is experiencing. And that's why this is a subject that is more close to the home of elderly people than it is for most young people. Because young people have not yet lived to the degree that they have been called upon to experience firsthand pain and suffering. Suppose, for example, that one's life as a believer is exposed to the powerful winds of a hurricane or a tornado. We lose our home, our income, our family, and we're left paralyzed from an injury. As we lie on our bed, we reflect that this natural disaster cannot be traced to mere moral origins. After all, a hurricane does not possess free will. The simple pieces of life's meanings don't seem to fit together anymore. If God is all-powerful, could He not have prevented the hurricane from hitting the side of our little ship? Must we now limit our view of his omnipotence? Or perhaps he could have prevented it, but chose to allow it to happen. Then how can we continue to love and trust his goodness? Now this abstract question has become practical and personal, and we need answers. That's why if you have not had this happen to your life yet, you need to listen to this series of messages because before you enter heaven, you're going to go through much trouble and much trial and much tribulation. And you may need what you're going to hear here. 
to get you through some days ahead. The immediate context of the passage located in 1 Peter 3 is that of Christian suffering. The theme of Peter's letter is victory over suffering. The word suffer is the key word in the epistle. It is in the context of suffering that causes others outside the community of believers to ask of the believers the reason how we're able to maintain such a steadfast hope and confidence and holding on to God. It is our part or part of our Christian witness and duty to be able to both to understand and explain the role of suffering in God's will for our lives. Now, the first step in acquiring such an understanding is to define the meaning of suffering. We often equate suffering with physical pain. But there's a difference between pain and suffering. Suffering may include pain, but it is more than pain. Pain, in ordinary, is a good thing. You say, how could you say that? It keeps the body sound. It trains our reflexes and coordination and teaches the body what to avoid. Don't touch that hot stove. And pain tells you that the body is, is hurting. It is when the pain system stops working that the body can be harmed. We then say that pain can be good, but why does it have to hurt? And the answer is that it must hurt or we don't pay enough attention to it. God knew what He was doing when He created a central nervous system which feels pain. If you look at the group of words for suffering in the Greek New Testament, you will notice that to suffer is never used for just pain. It is always used to describe oppression from some afflicting source. We go to the Old Testament Hebrew, and we do not have a word that matches the Greek word for suffer. But its more descriptive terms are translated affliction, trouble, oppression, and grief. A dictionary meaning of suffering, taken from Webster's, means to suffer a loss, a disadvantage, or an injury. We might describe pain as affiliated with the body, the physical while suffering is experienced by the soul or the self which makes up the personality. Just as pain in the physical body warns us that something is wrong and needs correcting, so suffering in the soulish nature tells us that something is wrong and out of order in God's created world. For Adam did not experience this until the fall. And you and I have never lived a day in this universe without experiencing suffering and pain. We come into this world crying. We go out of it the same way. And until the eternal state gets here, we are exposed to the awareness and the reality something is out of order. That needs correcting. In summary, suffering is the soul's response to experiencing evil or affliction. I'll say it again. Suffering is the soul's response to experiencing evil or affliction. Having now gained an understanding of the meaning of suffering, let us now move to the second step and seek to locate the origin of suffering. Where did it come from? Where does all this evil affliction come from? For the Bible believer, the answer is clearly given. It is explained in the third chapter of the first book of the Bible named Genesis. 
which means origin or beginning. After creating man as male and female, God placed them in a garden paradise free of pain and suffering. God promised them this state of existence would continue as long as they obeyed His will. But if they disobeyed and ate of the forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would bring upon themselves a cursing penalty of suffering and death. Bible believers are well acquainted with that. This act of disobedience would be known as sin, meaning the transgression of the law, the casting off of God's authority. But where did this originate at? In Adam, where was it before? Here is what I've come to understand through years of study on this subject. The origin of sin breaks out first in the angelic creation. As Lucifer and Satan and a host of angels become jealous over God's role for the creature man. In an act of rebellion, of having to condescend and serve a lower creature, Lucifer said, I will not submit, I will ascend and become as God. He sought to destroy man and man God's purpose for man. He felt if he could frustrate God's plan to elevate man to a position of dominion over the created order, even that of the angels, it would prove that God was not the omnipotent creator, but a finite being like every other being. And God would thereby be dethroned as the supreme sovereign of the universe. I believe this plan was implemented and carried out, executed in the Garden of Eden. There, Lucifer deceived Eve into believing that she had misunderstood God's will that she could add something to her being, to complete her being, without losing the fellowship of her Creator in the process. Now catch that. She was deceived. She ate of the forbidden tree and persuaded her husband it would be in his best interest to do so. The Bible describes spiritual death as the separation or loss of the fellowship of one soul with God as its creator. The glory of God, the light of God in the soul of Eve went out. Something died within her. And soon Adam would experience that. Paul states that the woman, quote, being deceived was in the transgression. He also says, Adam was not deceived. When Adam ate of the tree, he knew full well he would suffer the loss of God's fellowship. Then why did he leave the fellowship of the Creator whom he loved? So often we just read these stories in the Bible... And it's all in the abstract. Can you not put yourself there in Adam's case and see he has a command to love his Creator and now then his wife, who is a creature, has left her Creator. She's in a fallen state. Now Adam makes a decision. And he knows the full consequences of what's going to come about. Why did he leave this fellowship with the Creator? The answer is found in Genesis 3.12. Quote, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. I think we have missed much by just saying that all Adam is doing is just shifting the blame here. Yes, that's entailed, but I think we miss the emotion 
of what led to Adam's decision. Where did Eve come from? Originated from Adam. She was part of him, Asa. Bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. He looks at the Creator. He looks at the creature. And if we understand this, we see this thing still going on in all members of the human race. He could not endure the idea of having to part with a part of himself, his wife. So he chose to give up the Creator. And in Romans 1.25, the expression there is applicable to Adam. He loved the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. He makes the choice. God thereby places a curse upon the entire created order of fallen angels and men. And this would extend to the lower creation as well. So that Paul could say in Romans 8.22 that the whole creation, follow me, now groans and prevails in pain together until now. Angels, men, animals, plants. The whole created order is under the curse of God. The created order which now exists is not what is found in Genesis 1 and 2. God cannot look upon it and say it is good. Because fallen angels and men have brought upon themselves the curse of God. And this curse is implemented, now listen, through the instrumental means of suffering. The curse of suffering fell first on Satan. Because you have done this, you're going to be cursed below the, at the level of the lowest of the creation, the dust of the earth. Then Adam the lower creation, and finally it was and is transmitted to Adam's offspring. And I'm looking at Adam's offspring this very moment. You are under a curse which fell on Adam as Adam represented the covenant head of the race of humanity. All of what comprises our human nature existed in the reproductive system of fallen Adam. Thus Paul could say in Romans 5.12, Wherefore, as by one man, what happened? Sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We're trying to trace the origin of human suffering. Adam's action was the original sin of the human race. He acted as the covenant head of all humanity. Sometimes in systematic theology it's referred to as the federal head. The word federal means covenant. Now follow me carefully. This is somewhat involved. But if you grasp it, it will help you to understand the doctrine of original sin. Got your thinking caps on? Let's go. The human race is a distinct species from that of the angels. Agreed? Each angel was created as a separate being and thus acted on their own having no covenant head or representative. In contrast, the human race is propagated by natural generation. Reproduction. 
The human race is not a combination of separate and independent beings like the angels, but is comprised of an organic and realistic whole, sharing a common nature originating in a common source, namely our first parents. Whatever happens to Adam and Eve, their offspring is going to be like them. The nature of the child to be, now listen carefully, the nature of the child to be is pre-existing in the reproductive system of its parents. Got it? Thus, generation or reproduction does not create human nature, but it propagates it and reproduces it. You still with me? I'm going to read the statement again. The nature of a child to be is pre-existing in the reproductive system of its parents. Thus, generation or reproduction does not create human nature, but it propagates it and reproduces it. I am a model of Adam, fallen. I acted not on my own separate from Adam. Adam represented my nature. And when he acted... I got what happened to him. This is what those passages means about Levi paying tithes in the loins or the reproductive system of Abraham. Levi, who lived hundreds of years after Abraham, came into being, but he came into being through the reproductive system of Abraham. Levi's humanity, his nature, existed in Abraham. So our physical birth, stay with me now, does not begin our humanity, but it personalizes it into individual human beings. In birth or conception, there is the manifestation of a distinct individual sharing a common nature which existed beforehand. Are you saying then, Brother Jim, that when Adam sinned in the eating of the forbidden fruit, that each individual human being actually ate of the fruit? As individuals, certainly not. Because none of us existed as individuals when Adam ate of the forbidden fruit. But through our common nature, which we share with Adam, when he acted, we acted. And thus we sinned in him. So we have Adam as our head in a twofold capacity, as a legal head, constituting whatever happens to him is going to happen to his offspring, and a living, vital union with Adam. So that this is how original sin is propagated, is that the nature pre-exists, and then the individual at conception comes into a distinct entity. You become a person in your conception and birth, but your humanity pre-exists, and it goes all the way back to Adam. And again, see that? That's how we are distinct from the angels. The angels do not produce little baby angels. I'm sorry if that messes up some of your, your flowers and your paintings. Angels aren't, aren't women either. Angels are all distinct 
When they fell into sin, each one fell individually. They did not fall through a head because they had a distinct entity. But when you and I fell, we fell in Adam because my nature was there in Adam. Now in our conception and birth, we acquire a fallen nature which is sinful before we ever commit a personal act of transgression. We are born sinners and will manifest our nature in personal acts of sin. This is what we mean by the doctrine of original sin. All sinned in Adam. Since all infants are conceived in sin, then in their humanity they are all exposed to the curse of suffering and death. So infants, before they commit their first act of personal sinning, are under the curse which is directed toward their personal humanity or nature. Do infants die? They do. Have they ever committed a personal act of transgression? No. Then why do they die? Because they inherited Adam's nature. And that is the wages of sin being death. Why is this important to our understanding of human suffering? Paul goes on in Romans 5, 13 and 14 to explain why. Quote, Until the law, sin was in the world. That is, until Mount Sinai was given, the Mosaic Covenant. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Whoever that is, they've never broken a commandment like Adam did as to what caused their death, who is the figure of him that was to come. I believe Paul is here asserting that the reason for universal suffering and death in human existence, is due to the universal sinfulness of all men. It is not due to their personal acts of breaking direct commandments of God like Adam did. But it is due to the fact that they have all acquired a corrupted nature from Adam. Do you see that the churches that teach that infants are born innocent have a problem with this passage of Scripture here. Because infants die before they ever violate one of God's commandments. Death is reigning over that segment of humanity. Thus, infants, the mentally retarded, etc., who cannot consciously break a commandment are nevertheless subject to suffering and death due to their sharing in Adam's sinful humanity. We are in Adam when we are vitally born and conceived. We are born in Adam. We are organically and vitally united to his life, which he has passed on to all of us. That's why... I don't have to commit a first act of sin and become accountable, reach an age of accountability before I'm exposed to suffering and death. I come into this world under the curse, Brother Clint, because of what my father Adam did. My nature was in him. Adam's death was brought about by a personal act of transgressing a direct command. That's what it means, even over them who had not sinned after the similitude or the likeness of Adam's transgression. But the suffering and death of his offspring is brought about by their common union with Adam's fallen nature. And thus all sin in Adam, all suffer and all die. All men come into this world born 
in Adam, quote, unquote, and live under the curse which exposes them to temporal suffering and death. Now follow me in conclusion. Whoever lives and dies in this condition will be exposed to the torments of eternal suffering in the lake of fire, which is called the second death. Those who argue that a loving God would never expose His moral creatures to a condition such as hell need to consider that their view of God's love does, in reality, expose men to horrible sufferings in this present life. If you argue that God is too loving to cause anybody to suffer in hell, then you've got a bigger problem because that same God allows horrible things to happen to human beings in this present life. Why should we think it would change in the afterlife? All of those who are born again in Christ, Brother Bob, have the curse of eternal wrath lifted off of them both in this life and the life to come. Nevertheless, in this life, those who have been placed in Christ, in living vital union, through the work of the Spirit, joining us to the nature of Christ, have His life, His nature flowing to us. But nevertheless, they remain exposed to the common curse which resides on the creation as a whole. Whatever suffering and death to which they may be exposed, however, is redemptive and prepares them for their state of eternal glorification. If we suffer with Him, we shall what? Reign with Him. So there is an inseparable purpose why you're suffering as a Christian. It's preparing you for a state of victory in the eternal state of affairs. As Christ suffered and overcame and sat down on His Father's throne, He says, He that overcometh, I will grant to sit with Me on My throne. Oh, I hope we get to that down in the weeks to come where we can see where the victory is at. In summary, we can then say that the Bible explains that the source of all suffering flows out of the curse which God has placed on His creation, which fallen angels and men have brought upon themselves by their desire to become gods and remove God from the throne of His glory. Every time you sin, you're in that category. You're in that category. Is that I don't care what God says, I'm going to do what I want. This understanding pieces together one side of the framework of the puzzle to enable us to have an insight into the mystery of human only one part, one side of the puzzle, and that is the creature's sin. So I leave you with that one concept today. Where does suffering originate at? In the sin of the creature. You'll have to come back for the next service when it's my time to preach again to find the rest as we put the outer framework together and then start placing the individual pieces of the puzzle together. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge You as our Creator, the One who is worthy 
of all honor and glory, the one who is worthy of perfect obedience from your creatures. We acknowledge that we possess a nature which rises up against that duty and seeks to disobey and dethrone your authority to tell us what is good and evil and that we would replace what you define as good and evil with our own self-definition of what is good and evil. And we confess that our suffering is connected with that as we go back to the first sin in the Garden of Eden. We thank you that we are not only born into this world in Adam, but that we have a hope in the gospel that we who are believers have been put in Christ and that through Him we not only shall escape the consequences of the second death, but we shall be given an understanding of how to respond to our suffering in this present life to where that it is viewed as a victory rather than as a defeat. That even though we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, but in all of these things that happen to us day by day, we are more than conquerors through your Son who loved us. So we're enabled to look at our suffering through different glasses, through different understanding, when we see how it relates to our eternal destiny. We're grateful for your Son in coming and in our very redemption suffered as never a creature has ever suffered in his humanity. Forgive us when we would desire to go to heaven in any other way other than the way Christ went and returned back to his throne. Cause us to see that if our Savior, our Lord, our leader suffered, then who are we to seek to avoid that? Conform us to the likeness of Christ through our sufferings here on earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Clint, a brother, come.